At Consumer Cellular, you get the same exact coverage as the largest carriers, but for up to half the cost. Same thing, up to half the cost. Up to half the cost for the same thing. 50% the money for 100% the same thing. I hope I'm making myself clear. Consumer Cellular. When freedom calls, we're here to answer. Call us at 1-888-FREEDOM. Half the cost savings based on cost of Consumer Cellular single-line 5-gigabyte data plan with unlimited talk and text compared to lowest cost single-line postpaid unlimited talk text and data plan offered by T-Mobile and Verizon May 2023. Welcome to Pod Save America. I'm John Favreau. I'm John Lovett. Uh, I'm still Tommy Vitor, although I'm just about to turn into an Elden Ring. We just have to listen to 10 minutes of Love It and, and Elijah and Milo talk pouch. about video games. C-button. I'm saying I use the triangle to go to the pouch oh where I keep my lantern, my horse, what my are we horse about food, today? and my On health. today's show, Kevin McCarthy Thank gives you. away the house to become speaker. Joe Biden takes his first presidential trip to the U.S.-Mexico border. And later, we'll be joined by the first Gen Z member of Congress, 25-year-old Maxwell Alejandro Frost. Freeze up my square button for my wondrous physic. But first, we were so inspired by all the work that our Vote Save America volunteers did in the last midterm that we made new merch to celebrate you. Fresh VSA crewnecks in classic colors are available now okay. at the Crooked Store. No V-neck? I don't know. Okay. I don't know. I'll go check for myself. V- yeah, check go check yourself. it out. Head to crooked.com slash store to shop. Get yourself one of those classic crewnecks. We're around town or in Limgrave. Jesus. All right, let's get to the news. <laughs> that was so real. Uh, Kevin McCarthy finally won the race for speaker by giving the job to Matt Gates <laughs> and the most MAGA members of Congress. After five days, 15 votes, and a midnight fight on the House floor that nearly led to violence, McCarthy got the votes of every Republican except for the six original Never Kevins, who he persuaded to just vote present with a little last-minute help from the MAGA king himself, Donald Trump. Here's a clip from late Friday night when shit got real. Look at somebody's yeah. holding somebody back. Look at that. Oh, somebody just held somebody back. Stephanie, just look at that. It looks like a fight breaking out on the floor. Pull oh, back. Oh, pull back. I mean, yeah. Right on the face. Somebody yeah. grabbed him. This yeah. is It's physical? Wait a minute. Hold on. Let's follow the camera. Kevin McCarthy looks pretty upset. <laughs> Stay civil. Who said that? Stay civil. So, first question: Who stopped Alabama Congressman Mike Rogers from punching Matt Gates in the face? And should that person be impeached? Well, we know, we do know it is uh, uh, North Carolina. Uh, North Carolina's Richard Hudson, mm. uh, who no flair for drama. Yeah, you know, look, it, uh, we. I was in full. I was watching it Friday night, as we all were. You weren't full, playing Elden Ring. I I literally moved. Okay. I switched. Mm-hmm. It was. I could have done a two screen experience, but, uh, and I was just. I was in full Ken Watanabe mode. Just let them fight. <laughs> 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 I think it was cool too that because C SPAN cameras aren't yet locked down because the speaker wasn't chosen, they got the moment where Matt Gates put his hand on Kevin McCarthy's cheek and said, "Do you feel in charge?" <laughs> <laughs> uh. Wouldn't you be mad? It's one thing to break up a fight, good for you. 
But t- to grip you over your mouth, he almost got like a fish hook thing. We were, that would Love and I were me. talking about this with uh, with Congressman Frost. Put your grubby so, hands out I, of my mouth. Yeah, don't put, putting your hands. Sir. We don't know. These are not hand sanitizer people. No. Uh, <laughs> but so what I, I, <laughs> my, my, I also, what I, my, my breakdown of what happened and why the hand went over the mouth is he was trying to pull him back in an act of friendship saying, you don't want this. I'm, I'm trying to help you stop yourself from being in a bad position. And then Mike Rogers started fucking talking. Yeah. And then the other guy was Leaned like, I got to get this guy to be quiet. And then it was just it, it was hand on the mouth. It was hand on the mouth. And the interesting backstory there on Rogers is that he so he's uh slated to become chair of the armed services committee he sure is uh where gates also serves but and reportedly got an offer from mccarthy or leadership to chair a subcommittee uh, in armed services if he agreed to vote present for mccarthy and rogers didn't like that concession very much because rogers thinks there were other people who deserved to be chair of that subcommittee whatever it is uh over matt gates which is probably all the people yeah well that's the thing i think they're both are currently on the committee and the closer you get to matt gates the more you understand how far he should be from chairing a committee there's a moment there is a moment where you can see matt gates mouthing the word committee at either mccarthy or Mm. one of his goons so that's why there's been this speculation although then mccarthy says nothing was promised but Two things. One, he's a liar. Yeah. Yep. Yep. Uh, that's important. And yeah. two, that's like, how we got this job. <laughs> a lot of this is a wink and a nod. Even as we're recording this, we we know we know some of the kind of changes to McCarthy's positions he took between Thursday and Friday, but we don't totally understand what those final few mm. concessions were to get those six goobers the from, from to the present votes. Yeah, we should all try to be a little more present. But uh, Richard Hudson, the <laughs> congressman, John, uh, UNC grad, elected student body president, president of the College Republican, staffer for uh, elected officials. And his wife was Kellyanne Conway's chief of staff. I took when you said in the in the prep, uh, what do we know about this guy? <laughs> I took you literally. You know uh, what? Wow. That was th- that By was Wikipedia educational. Then. I literally had never heard of his name before. No, I neither. I was hoping he's like a wrestler now. or something fun. No. What do we well love it? You said we don't know exactly what happened. Like when we recorded Thursday's pod, McCarthy had already made just about every concession possible and still didn't have the votes. What changed between Thursday and, and Friday night? What do we know about what changed? I don't think we know. I think you're. I don't think we know everything. Yet. I don't think we know everything. I believe it is between Thursday and Friday that he finally conceded and went from five to one votes to get the yeah, uh, yeah. to get the um, no confidence vote. Thursday we morning. did. Yeah, we did know that. But we we didn't know that it. Did we know that it switched from five to one before you recorded? It was like yeah. Right then. It was. Here's what we knew. We knew that all these concessions were floated. We knew that Chip Roy and about 14 of the 21 holdouts might move based on these concessions, but they hadn't yet. Right. And then I said to Dan during the recording, oh, Matt Gates just said, um, either Kevin McCarthy's going to have to withdraw from the race or live the entirety of his speakership in a straitjacket based on the rules we're working on then, right now, and then, and which then, was a hint that maybe Matt Gates was coming around. And then Kevin, <laughs> Kevin McCarthy just went running up to Matt Gates and was like, "Tie me up, baby. I'm in. <laughs> <laughs> I want, I want, I want this name. I want this title." Here's what we know: Kevin McCarthy, he's the new LBJ. He's the master <laughs> of the Congress. I mean, I, what I think happened is we started to read, thanks to all the leaks all these rule changes that were going to be put in place. And then Thursday night, I think they went through them all night and he probably got them on paper and locked everybody down because the next day, Friday is when he flipped those 14 Republican votes. Uh, and then he went after, those are the people who like really wanted substantive changes. The Roy Chips. The Chip Roy's. Yeah, <laughs> yeah your Chip's Roy. Your Chip's Roy. The, uh, 
Which yeah, are, and they, so they're moving away from the other ones are uh, Chips of Roy. Chip, <laughs> they don't want to do any more. Pretty, it's great. <laughs> okay. I think keep going. Uh, they don't want to do the omnibus. They the Republican these uh, Republicans hate these big omnibus bills. They feel like they have to vote for, so they want individual spending bills from each of the committees. They want the debt ceiling uh, tied to uh, spending cuts. Those are some of the big ones. Yeah, and then once he got the fourteen, that put a lot of, and this was McCarthy's plan, which worked out. This put a lot of pressure on the six original Never Kevins <laughs> because now you had all these switches. And so now what are they going to do? And apparently they had worked out a plan or they had discussed a plan, the six Never Kevins, because none of them wanted to actually vote for McCarthy because they've all gone on. Like right, Gates said, I'd rather be waterboarded than vote for McCarthy. You know, they all they went way too far. They went right, they all went way too, So they said, all right, we're none of us are going to vote for him if we all vote present. Then we won't have to vote for him, but he could still get it and whatever. But apparently that plan hadn't been like firmed up <laughs> when they did the 14th ballot. So Gates was like suddenly needed. They needed a yes vote from Gates and not a present vote to actually get McCarthy speaker because of some absences. And Gates is like, fuck, no, I'm not going to be the no. one to do he it. He goes president and everybody claps and cheers thinking it's over. But none of them know how to count votes except yeah. for McCarthy. He yeah. goes sprinting over to Matt Gates. is like, what's your problem, man? Yeah. But I mean, Matt Gates, he's such a smug prick. He said on the record, I ran out of things I could even imagine to ask for, which is obnoxious, but also true. And I think they were all looking for a way to just climb down. Yeah. yeah, no, I mean, he was effusive towards the end there. He could never vote yes because he said he was never Kevin and he stuck with that. But yeah. there was that moment where basically they realized they need one of these six to flip to yes. And they were all just gathered around Lauren Boebert and Matt Gates, just just like just the whole apparatus of the fucking Congress gathered around two of the most disgusting human beings in public life. MTG's got Donald Trump on the phone just throwing it at people. Yeah, I was going to say, because he's a, is a messy bitch who loves drama, yeah. Donald Trump was involved. He's watching, he's watching. <laughs> also, by the way, do you know how fucked up and stupid and deranged you are that MTG is rebranding as a sane person based on your misadventures? She's walking around being like, guys, I think this has gotten out of hand. Isn't it a shame we can't we come together and govern? I've got Donald Trump on the phone. He'd love to help. I think she's bummed. I think she wants wanted to be part of the insurrection and she kind of missed out yeah like lauren Robert was like i'm taking that spotlight yeah. now yeah no there's a great picture of uh mtg holding her phone that says dt on it and she's trying to give the phone to matt rosendale who's one of the never kevins and he basically was like get away get away don't put me in that don't position do that to i me. can't talk to him <laughs> don't do so did he, he say like don't do me like that yeah. <laughs> so, i think he did yeah. <laughs> so she instead so the only he trump i guess talked to uh to biggs andy biggs from arizona who originally ran against mccarthy and talked to gates and told them to knock the shit off so basically you're making me look bad <laughs> the thing is there's a lot of like there's a lot of uh you know uh, uh victory has a thousand parents but uh in the days leading up to it, you know, McCarthy is now going on television being like, I want to thank my friend Donald Trump who helped course, get me all the course. way there. Donald Trump knows how to support somebody if he really wants to. He was going on True Social saying like, hey, guys, maybe Kevin will be good. I don't know. I say give him a shot, but I'm not I'm not, not crazy about it. He couldn't have been more predictable in all this. It was perfect. He did just enough to get himself in the stories. I mean, at first he refused to come out in support of Kevin. Then the vote happened. Then he did this sort of tepid true thing. But you even had reps like Ralph uh, Norman saying like, I disagree with Trump. This is not his fight. This is our fight with McCarthy. Like they were not scared of Trump. Yeah, Boebert said that too. It, which was impressive. And then as soon as it became clear McCarthy was going to win, Trump gets into gear. He starts calling people, right? But like Hakeem Jeffries becomes speaker. Trump's going to find a way to take credit. I mean, this was, just, <laughs> this was laughable, <laughs> laughable nonsense. I did love his tweet though. Or, uh, sorry, his truth. Uh, I greatly helped Kevin McCarthy attain the position of speaker of the house. I did our country a big favor. Yeah, you did. Subtle. Yeah, you did. 
So uh, now that the House has a speaker, they also are uh, voting any minute now, as we record on Monday afternoon, on a new set of rules for the chamber that will empower the most extreme Republicans. Love it. You mentioned a few. What are some of the most consequential here that we're all going to have to live with? The most important is the debt ceiling, that they have they have secured a promise that there won't be a vote on lifting the debt ceiling without spending cuts. Those are a non-starter for the White House and for the Democratic Senate. So that sets off some kind of standoff over the debt ceiling. That is by far the biggest issue to come. Uh, beyond that, the fact that there are three Republicans on the Rules Committee, which is three a- Freedom Caucus. Three, I'm sorry, three Freedom Caucus members uh, as part of the Republican uh, majority on the Rules Committee means those three members have veto over what comes out of that committee. That's going to be a very big deal. Uh, we should say why bigger than that. Is. Yeah. I mean, the, the Rules Committee in the House sets the terms and conditions of debate on any bill that goes forward. I, I think the normal process is like the Judiciary Committee votes on a bill and then it goes to the Rules Committee and then they structure how it's handled on the open floor. So that's just like enormous power. It used to be called the Speaker's Committee because that was how the Speaker controlled the floor. Kevin has just handed over the keys now. And basically... Because they have, if there's nine members in the Rules Committee, Freedom Caucus gets three, Democrats have four. So now there's only two non-Freedom Caucus members that are Republicans on the committee. So basically, the Freedom Caucus, by joining with the Democrats, who are going to probably oppose most things that Republicans want to do in that Rules Committee anyway, can effectively stop any bill or any amendment from coming to the floor that they do not like. They can't necessarily put anything on the floor they like because they would need a majority on the committee and Democrats might not want to give them that. But they can kill just about everything. And by the same token, <laughs> by the same token, if the non-Freedom Caucus members want to get something onto the floor that the Freedom Caucus does not want, That's they right. will need Democrats. Yep. And Democrats will play ball, yeah. as we always do. We love yeah, playing ball. <laughs> so, yeah. So process wise, that is uh, it sounds really complicated, maybe boring, but it is extremely consequential. Deal. And then I think the debt sort of dovetails with the debt ceiling uh, promise, too, because you can make a promise, whatever. But like now <laughs> the only way to pass a clean debt ceiling hike is by either McCarthy agreeing to it, which now he uh, will not do. Well, he now he is, as of today, says he will not do. He the one criticism that is correct by these Freedom Caucus members is that McCarthy says things that aren't true and changes his mind and changes position all the time. True. Well, and now they have a mechanism to hold him accountable because if he chooses to uh, try to do this, they, they can immediately try to remove him with just one person calling for a vote. So McCarthy's sort of hamstrung there. There is, uh, we've talked about this briefly before, there's a discharge petition, which basically every Democrat, if, if, if a bill has been stuck in the Rules Committee for more than 30 days, you can file a discharge petition with a majority of the members of the House, meaning like every Democrat and now just four Republicans could file a discharge petition. petition and then after 30 days would get that out of the, the committee if it's been stuck there. So they can do that, but that's a very long and complicated process that doesn't necessarily always work just because it requires a lot of coordination. And as we said before, those House Republicans that agree to join the Democrats on that could very well face primary challenges, though already Brian Fitzpatrick was a, a more moderate Republican, a House member from Pennsylvania, has said he will do that if it comes to that. Right. So you basically have a situation where Republicans try to do uh, brinksmanship over the debt ceiling. Democrats have already said in the in the Senate, Democrat and and the Biden administration said that's a non-starter. That fails. Then you try to get a clean bill through. That fails. 
Then barring that, you have to go to this discharge position. It is high risk, not just because it is a difficult thing to coordinate. Uh, if it fails, you don't get to do it again. Like you get one shot at this discharge position on this issue. The sort, whole house has to like vote. Sort of like the Armageddon movie. Well, right. Oh. <laughs> and so basically- So who's drilling <laughs> and who's inserting you the You get one shot and then that's- um, This got a little sexual, the way it sounded to well, me. So discharge position. And so- <laughs> Just how it's sounding. But so, uh, because what could happen is you could end up- It doesn't matter how you start. It matters how we finish. <laughs> Kevin. That was- uh, what in, in, in the words of Kevin McCarthy. Just terrible. How Wait, you finish for the American and people. It, and, and, uh, <laughs> I, I'm, I'm scared where this is going. Go back to your substance, nerd. <laughs> the point is, the point is, you, a discharge position is two votes. The first is one to say, let's vote on this on the floor. The second is to actually pass it. If the second one fails, you've lost your ability to have a vote, a clean vote in the House. Yeah. And so now then you go to, I think, some really, really uh, uh, untested fail safes. One is, and it's back, the Treasury Department making a trillion dollar coin, which the Biden administration has already, already said, said they, they won't they do. Won't and then there's the other the other uh, uh, outside, uh, the outside move, which is saying the 14th Amendment says we have to pay all these bills. So we're just going to pay them. Yeah, not good. I mean, none of them are good. All, all of the spending stuff is bad. <laughs> he also agreed to unlimited amendments on spending bills, which means you could basically filibuster House spending bills now, just sort of de facto by putting putting random uh, uh, amendments on them. And also that McCarthy said that any increase in the debt ceiling will be accompanied by uh, cuts to federal spending and that discretionary spending will be capped at FY 2022 level. So this year's level, which is like $130 billion cut, which is not really doable so they'll probably get into defense spending cuts, too, if they actually go through with this. So in a sense, Kevin McCarthy handed his caucus a whole bunch of really, really bad votes coming down the pike. Well, I was going to say, yeah, all of this is going to be horrific for the country, particularly if we breach the debt ceiling. Uh, it could cause a you know economic catastrophe uh, that's, that's uh, much worse than just a regular recession. But just to talk about the politics for a second. Because the uh, what what the Freedom Caucus demanded was so extreme, right? Which is not just like some cuts accompanying the debt ceiling hike. Like they want to vote on a balanced budget amendment. It's just impossible in <laughs> and, ten years. Which means that any anything you would do, any kind of vote you would take to get the necessary cuts to abide by their craziness, would gut Medicare and Social Security and Medicaid. So basically, these people are going to go in the next year, Republicans are going to say, if you don't let us gut Medicare and Social Security and Medicaid, we will blow up the global economy. That's going to be their position. Not popular. And I'll tell you, it's not popular. And it's why you're already seeing, I will not ever call them moderate Republicans. They're not moderate Republicans, but they're Republicans that have been around longer than these people mm. are starting to say things like, we have ways around this. And also, wait, isn't the debt ceiling just cashing checks we've already written? It is. And so I do think a lot of this is going to be about how much are these Freedom Caucus members daring Republicans from swing districts or Biden districts to just say, I'm sorry, but I'm voting with the Democrats to get things done. Yeah. But there will be a confrontation over this. And I do think like the discharge petition could work for the debt ceiling because it's just a clean bill. It seems like to avoid a government shutdown, it can't work because a lot of those bills to fund the government don't come up and they're not finished until like right before the government's about to shut down and the discharge petition takes 30 days. So on that one, like we're headed towards a shutdown oh, at some I point was, in the fall. I was, like, <laughs> yeah, that's what I was, as I was sort of looking through the deal, 
What I found myself thinking is, all right, there are some exit ramps on the debt ceiling. Let's hope we use one. Let's hope that works. But man, are we hurtling towards some kind of government shutdown, partial yeah. government shutdowns. That's going to be the, the cycle. It's going to be people's social security. I mean, it's going to be, it's the mess. Bad shit. At Consumer Cellular, you get the same exact coverage as the largest carriers, but for up to half the cost. Same thing, up to half the cost. Up to half the cost for the same thing. 50% the money for 100% the same thing. I hope I'm making myself clear. Consumer Cellular. When freedom calls, we're here to answer. Call us at 1-888-FREEDOM. Half the cost savings based on cost of Consumer Cellular single-line 5-gigabyte data plan with unlimited talk and text compared to lowest cost single-line postpaid unlimited talk text and data plan offered by T-Mobile and Verizon May 2023. When booking with other vacation rental apps sounds like this... This place doesn't look like the pictures. Come on, the doors are on back. Whoa, what the? Is there a door behind all those spiders? <laughs> it's time to try one that sounds more like a vacation. <sighs> look at how many spiders there aren't. Where should we lie down for eight consecutive hours first? Relax, you booked a Verbo. Beyonce, Katanji Brown-Jackson, the lady who spent 500 days in a cave. Women are all around us. And this Women's History Month, the Crooked Store is celebrating with a pop-up shop featuring favorites from women of color founded companies. For a limited time, the SheCommerce pop-up shop has everything from delicious goodies to kids books to candles, all from small companies that we love. It is a great way to support women of color while treating a woman in your own life. Maybe that's yourself to a sweet distraction from the endless horrors that we face every single day. Happy Women's History Month to all. Check out what's in stock at crooked.com slash store for this month only. House Republicans can't really pass any legislation because the Senate Democrats can like kill all their any crazy shit that they send over. The only power they have is to do three things, two of which we talked about, blow up the global economy by breaching the debt ceiling, shutting down the government if they refuse to fund it. And then the third thing is uh, they're really excited about their investigations that they got teed up. Super yeah. pumped. Um, yeah. So New York Times reports that incoming Judiciary Committee Chairman Jim Jordan has that. That's fun. Um, he was also going to chair a special subcommittee to investigate the Department of Justice, the FBI, the intelligence agencies, and will demand access to open investigations by the Justice Department and classified intelligence. Um what do you do about this if you're the White House or Democrats in Congress and, and you start in, in the, you're the you're the DOJ and you get asked for information about an ongoing investigation? They're going to say no, <laughs> yeah. absolutely not. And they're going to cite precedent going back decades. And I don't know that they will yield on that. And I'm not really sure what Jim Jordan thinks he can do about it. You know, like they there is a judiciary committee. They do oversight over the Department of Justice. There is an intelligence committee that does intel oversight. This is just sort of a special, they're calling it a church committee 2.0. The church committee uh, investigated real abuses by the intelligence community, things like MK Ultra, where Americans were given uh, acid to see if it was a truth serum, like the surveillance of Martin Luther King Jr., et cetera. Uh, it led to the creation of the intelligence oversight committees. This proposal is just payback for people investigating Donald Trump. That's all it is. It's also the, the the House Rules Package doesn't fundamentally alter the relationship between Congress and the administration. It's not a law. No. It's not a it's a 
it's a sop to Jim Jordan. It's their internal rules. It's a it's something that McCarthy has promised Jim Jordan. It doesn't suddenly require right. the DOJ to uh, 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 behave in a different way. And the Biden people have signaled like we will go along with legitimate oversight and we will not go along with stuff like this. I mean, they're basically saying that I, I they're going to take all this. This is all going to be fought out in court. And I think that the Biden administration probably feels very confident <laughs> that they'll they'll prevail. Yeah. And by the way, I think that Kevin McCarthy, when he gave Jordan the concession, probably, probably knew this too, much, and probably yeah. wasn't didn't think it was much of a concession. It's like, you know what? He wants to go tell the the the, the base that he did this. He wants to go on TV, make a bunch of noise. And then when the Biden administration rejects the subpoenas, they can he can call them lawless and he can go on Fox and, yeah, have a great time. And and I'd also point out that uh, Jim Jordan uh, um, has in the past shown that he doesn't actually uh, believe congressional subpoenas carry much weight because he is currently yeah. or he just was in defiance of one. The one thing that I did appreciate that that the White House did was basically so, you know, Jordan and some other Republicans put in a bunch of requests uh, 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 last year and basically said, like, new Congress clock starts again, which really, I think, pissed them off. Yeah. Uh, yeah. But those were also requests from individual members, not like through the committee. Right. So I think they're they're going to slow roll them and they're going to push them back and they're going to participate in legitimate well, no, I, I think, inquiry while at the same time trying to but recognizing even even though they may have the the, the power of the gavel, these are not going to be on the level investigation. Yeah, it's fun. No, I think what you're you're telling is that the the Jordan the Jim Jordan types put in their oversight requests too early, and the Biden folks are like, oh, sorry, calendar right. you guys yeah. ended yet. Yeah, mm. come back, call us next year. I mean, look, it's going to be a circus, but and I think they'll will they find a Trump judge or two who's like, you know, uh, Eileen Cannon in the uh, in the Trump investigation uh, matter who just like goes with them? Yeah, maybe. But like, I think even the even the, you know, the appeal, the more conservative appeals courts in the Supreme Court have shown that on some of these requests by Trump or Trumpy people, they're like, no, you're not going to you're not going to do this. And and they all lean towards uh, the uh, the executive branch having unchecked power right <laughs> sort of yeah, there. Exactly. that's, that's their safe true. space all right so one of the big investigations republicans have promised is into joe biden's handling of immigration at the u.s mexico border which he just visited in el paso on sunday for the first time as president in the last year more migrants have been apprehended trying to cross the border illegally than at any time since 1960 the white house just laid out a new enforcement plan it would on one hand allow more migrants from more countries to apply for a two-year work permit in the u.s But it would also require asylum seekers to book an appointment for their claim to be heard before they arrive here, which means they will no longer be able to just show up at the border and apply or stay in the U.S. while they wait for a court date. Republicans attack the plan and the visit is too little too late. No surprise there. But some immigration activists called it a humanitarian disgrace. So win win for Joe Biden. Tommy, what do you think of the trip and the plan? which seem to have hit the sweet spot of satisfying no one. No one. The, well, let's do the trip first. I mean, I think the the debate around whether Joe Biden should go like himself look at the border really reminded me of when Republicans used to say, Barack Obama won't say radical Islamic terrorism. That became their one stop sort of catch all attack on him for dealing with terrorism. And it was it made a complicated problem sound simple and rhetorical. Eventually, we used those words to try to move the debate forward. Spoiler alert, it did not. Um, (laughs) But I do think, I think Biden is in a similar spot where he knows just visiting the border changes nothing. Maybe, though, this will change the conversation, take away a Republican talking point. We'll see. Already, it seems like uh, what is happening is Republicans are saying, you went to the border, but you didn't actually see actual migrants. Yeah, if you don't go to the border, you're refusing to go to the border, you go to the border. It's a photo op. 
I mean, under yeah, under what circumstance would Joe Biden have gone to the border and the Republicans would have said, bravo, Mr. President, never, you right. did it. Never, never. Uh, so what do you think about the plan since that's that's more substantive than just the border visit? I mean, I think like there is a real challenge at the border. Uh, more and more people are coming. Um, it's left border communities on both sides of the U.S. and Mexico border overwhelmed and unable to provide food and housing and services for the people who need them. It also has left our immigration system overwhelmed. Uh, immigration courts have backlogs that are years and years long. So Biden is trying to address this big, multifaceted, complicated problem piece by piece. And a lot of the recent migration is migrants from Venezuela, Cuba, Haiti, and Nicaragua. So these are countries where there's a really challenging humanitarian situation and uh, a political asylum case to be made because there's repressive leaders. So they're saying like, okay, we're creating this humanitarian parole program where 30,000 migrants from each of these countries can come. If you have a sponsor, you can buy a plane ticket, pass a background check, et cetera. But at the same time, they're increasing penalties for people who go try to seek asylum from those countries through Mexico. So the idea is address this very legitimate asylum need, but also do so in a way that disincentivize uh, people paying smugglers to get to the border or just going through Mexico on your own. Um, I think it's a flawed approach in a lot of different ways, but I think that the Biden team's position is basically this is a decade-old problem. Congress will not do anything to solve it. This is what we can do, so we're going to try to like bite at this piece by piece by going after these countries first. Longer term, like the only way to stop migration from Venezuela is to help the humanitarian situation in Venezuela. But we have a, we, there's a lot we can do to help there, but we obviously can't fix it as a country. So I think, you know, I, it, it's a start. I, I don't, I don't love the use of Title 42. I don't love the way Remain in Mexico has gone from a Trump policy to a Biden policy. I don't love sort of how asylum has gotten completely changed over the last five or six years. Yeah, it's, um, I think that like the contradiction I think at the core of this is that the Biden administration is using Title 42 to implement a policy in part to deter people from doing something extremely dangerous, right. which is seeking something they're allowed to seek, which is asylum. But at the same time as they're using Title 42, they're also in court trying to get rid of Title 42, which I think yeah. highlights the the kind of catch-22 that they're in. Because the current policy is not humane. People sleeping on the streets in El Paso, these years-long backlogs, the lack of resources, the border being overwhelmed, we are in an inhumane situation. Um, so like the advocates, I think, are right when they point out that like people have a right to seek asylum. Absolutely. They shouldn't need to be able to afford a plane ticket Absolutely. and have somewhere to go. But then the Biden administration says, hey, we put something like this in place uh, for Venezuela, and it did stop the number of people by 70% trying to get in the country in a dangerous way without permission. Yeah, the, the Venezuela piece of this was basically a pilot program back in October, and now they're extending it to Haiti, Cuba, and Nicaragua. And one of the reasons they're extending it is because it it worked, the pilot program, in, in the sense that it, reduced it, by it has been an effective deterrent yeah. and that it reduced illegal border crossing by 70% from Venezuela. No, but the, the problem is, and the, the humanitarian advocates aren't just correct from a humanitarian perspective on about asylum, but potentially from a legal perspective as yes, well. that's a and big problem. It's in, obviously, it's international law that we have agreed to abide by, but it's also Congress has made it fairly clear that you can come and apply for asylum whether you show up at a port of entry or anywhere else, right? Uh, and so the Biden administration saying that you can only do it from home is for sure intended to make the process more orderly and fair, but 
if the law is you can show up and do it anyway, like I don't know. And 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 the Ninth Circuit basically said to the Trump administration, like, yeah, you you can't make pe- you can't force people to apply somewhere else. Like they can they can apply for asylum if they get here. So I don't know that this new plan would actually will survive up. survive yeah, court challenges. This plan may not su- survive in court. Title forty two won't survive. Uh, uh, may not survive for that much longer. There's also a piece of this which is the Biden administration saying that if you've moved through another country where right. you did not seek asylum, you can't seek asylum here. Well, yeah, yeah, which the, yeah, the idea there is if you leave Venezuela, you go through Mexico, why didn't you apply for asylum in Mexico? Why did you come all the way to the United States? Right. Is, is the question there. And look, all of this is, it, it's what you said, Tommy. Like, they, this is maybe the best of a lot of bad options <laughs> facing the Biden administration because the only way this gets fixed is with new laws. Those are off the table because we, we just talked about how uh, Republicans aren't going to, uh, let the government stay open and may breach the debt ceiling, right? So they can't even get that done. They're not going to get immigration done. So barring that, if you're the Biden administration, you only have so many options and so many resources. And, and I think another piece of this, though, for Biden, uh, for, especially with Venezuela and Cuba, is more in like the the classical foreign policy bucket, which is our policy towards Venezuela has been to sanction the shit out of them and recognize a guy who is an opposition leader as the president for the last six years. That has completely failed. We need to rethink these sanctions regimes we have in place that are crippling the economies of these countries and then wondering why people are leaving them and trying to seek safety elsewhere. Now, I'm not saying like the United States is the entire reason that the Venezuelan economy has collapsed. Like Maduro is very much in charge and and responsible for governance of his own country. But U.S. sanctions have failed. The, The policy of recognizing Juan Guaido, this opposition leader as the president, has failed. Uh, And we need to move on from that and just rethink these policies, I think, whole cloth. There are all these like larger structural problems that contribute to the migration challenges that we face. There are past and present foreign policies. There is climate change is going to create more refugees all over the world than ever before and is continuing to do so. There's violence in all these countries, right? So you got to solve all that. In the immediate term, there's people showing up in El Paso and they have converted their convention center to a shelter. And you have these cities all along the border and increasingly cities all throughout the United States that just don't have the resources to care for migrants who, who show up in a humane way, even when they want to. Yeah, so uh, I, And that's a real challenge yeah, for, for cities, for, for border communities, for states, like all over the place. And you got to do something about it. Yeah. So I, I do think that's where, like, similar to that moment when the speaker vote was failing and you had Biden with McConnell uh, on a bridge showing the success of bipartisanship into this kind of thorny, very difficult, impossible to win issue with a lot of incredible pain and immiseration. Uh, Like Biden says that extreme Republicans are going to use it as an issue, but they have a choice. They can keep using immigration to try to score political points or they can help solve the problem and come together to fix the broken system. So he's going down there and he's putting himself on the side of, I would like to work on this issue with Congress. Comprehensive immigration reform is obviously... (laughs) almost certainly off the table, given the makeup of this Congress, as you said. Do I think it is inconceivable they can't find ways to address this in a smaller way, in some way through Congress? I don't I don't think it is impossible. I think he has to put himself on the side of trying and then leave it to these extreme Republicans to kill it. Uh, and 
I don't know. Politically, I don't know what else he would be able to I mean, do. I think they'll try, but you know, you have the acute near-term problem, you have the long-term structural problems. And I, I think you have a Republican Party that doesn't want the problem solved. Yeah. That's why we focus on the wall. That's why we focus on the border visit. And frankly, we have a country that's a lot less welcoming to immigration than I think all of us would, would want it to be. Well, even to, uh, yes. And to your point, Cinema and uh, Kirsten Cinema and Cornyn tried something narrow uh, to add it to the omnibus at the end of at the end of last year, and Republicans killed it because well, you're right. Like Tommy said, there's a Republican Party that doesn't want this problem. This, any part of this, they wouldn't problem get solved. through DACA when they had Donald Trump telling them they wanted it. And just, just he so, wanted it. I mean, you know, the last major immigration reform is 1986. Uh, George W. Bush tried this. It got through the House. Republicans killed it in the Senate. Obama tried to get something through. Republicans blocked it in the House. We have been kind of in this debate. And 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 what happened in both the Bush administration and the Obama administration is Democrats and, and both administrations compromised and pushed forward a ton of enforcement provisions, a ton of security procedures. And then the hardliners dis- dis- uh, dismiss it as amnesty and things just keep getting worse and worse and worse. But to your point, Tommy, about um, the attitudes in the country, we haven't talked about the politics really yet. Um, the percentage of people who say that increasing security along the U.S.-Mexico border to reduce illegal crossings, quote, should be an important goal, has risen to 73% from 68% three years ago. This is according to a recent Pew poll. Um, this was cited in the New York Times. The increase is largely driven by Democrats, 59% today versus 49% then. Now, Lest everyone think that, like, suddenly all Democrats and Americans became very resistant to immigration in in general. When you ask questions about, like, should people who are here, undocumented people here, be given a path to citizenship? Or you ask about DACA, you ask about children who are here. The percentage of people who want to welcome those people and want to give people, uh, immigrants, a path to citizenship is quite high. In fact, a majority. But there is a difference in politics in how we should handle people who are already here, who are undocumented, and what we should do about people who are coming over the border now. And part of that difference, the disparity is people thinking and a lot of immigrants who are here, who, who came, people who came here and have since been naturalized think this too. They think, okay, I came here, I stood in line, I did everything right. And, or I know people who have been here for years and still don't have citizenship, even though they're doing everything right. And yet someone comes over the border and right now, and then, and they get to stay here. Right. And so there's this feeling of this this fairness where the attitudes in general in the country become more generous to people who are here, who are working, you know, who want to be here and then and more worried about border security and people coming over here now. And I, and I do think that, it, that sort of ties together a kind of political necessity and a, and a practical necessity. And it is why I think the Democratic high level messaging on this issue has not changed in basically 20 years, which is we are a nation of immigrants. We are a nation of laws. We need to secure the border and have border enforcement while at the same time welcoming and and opening our doors to people seeking a better life in America. Like you could, that message has been the same for a very long time, both because I think politically, the only way you get to that generous and welcoming and progressive solution is by reassuring people that once you've created that more generous and progressive set of immigration policies that the border and, and the laws will be enforced because you have created incentive for people who want to come here. Yeah. And it's political, but it's also just like a practical thing. Yes. Right. Which is, you know, you can we can we can allow a lot more migrants and refugees and asylum seekers into this country, but we can't do it if we're not going to have an orderly process for it. We can't just have people streaming through here because then it puts too much of a burden on cities. And it turns people against the openness and the progressive 
outcomes that we like want. And it's not humane to the migrants. It's not. Yeah, the, the one area I do think that uh, the Biden administration has not sort of hit its goals is refugee policy. Yep. They've set caps for allowing refugees in, I think, like well over 100,000. I think we, you know, last year we maybe got to 17,000 people who actually got in. So I think there could be a little more work done there. Uh, obviously, this all got very complicated with the war in Ukraine. I think there's a lot that could be said about uh, the way Ukrainian refugees were welcomed compared to refugees from other countries who are black and brown. In many cases, the way Afghan refugees were were not uh, welcomed in a lot of cases. So, like, it's just, still not being welcomed. Yeah. Uh, we, yes, that's a whole other conversation. And, and just the fact that, like, even with you know, Joe Biden is going to Texas. He is greeting Governor Abbott, Abbott when he arrives and has handed him the letter. And then Abbott goes on television and doesn't just say that Joe Biden has failed, that Joe Biden can't succeed. He will never succeed because of the point you made. They this is this is an annuity to them. Yeah, he wants to you run know, on this when they can't write when they can't talk about inflation when it's not working to talk about critical race theory to fund the police. This is their political fund. This is what they go back to again and again and again. The, the migrant caravan coverage will start as we head into the fall and it will continue. And look, there's a right wing media ecosystem and infrastructure that wants to talk about only this. I, I, I tuned into uh, my guy Ben Shapiro today mm. on the way into the office. Uh, he skipped over the speaker debate, said he didn't care. It didn't matter who got the speaker job. He skipped other some other big hot button news story and went right to immigration because that's all the conservatives want to talk about. Yeah. This is a great episode, Ben. We will we will hear this uh, quite a bit over the next two years as we as we head into 2024 here about immigration. Okay, when we come back, Lovett and I talk to Congressman Maxwell Alejandro Frost. Hello, America. It's Ted from Consumer Cellular, the guy in the orange sweater. And this is your wake up call. If you don't have Consumer Cellular yet, now is the perfect time to switch and save. For a limited time, new customers can get wireless service for as low as $15 a month for your first year. Yep, the same exact nationwide coverage as the leading carriers for $15 a month for an entire year. What are you waiting for? Call 1-888-FREEDOM or visit ConsumerCellular.com and use code RADIO15. See ConsumerCellular.com slash FIRSTYEAR15 for promotional details. Did you know that women make up 56% of law students? That's grounds for bragging rights at the dinner table for your conservative uncle who still thinks women belong in the kitchen. It's clear that the future of the legal field is female. So why are so many legal podcasts and reviews authored by men? Hi, I'm Leah Littman. I'm Kate Shaw. And with Melissa Murray, we are the hosts of Strict Scrutiny. Each week, we break down the latest headlines and biggest legal questions facing our country through the lens of diverse voices to give you expert views you won't hear anywhere else. Strict Scrutiny is your guide to the Supreme Court. New episodes drop every Monday, plus bonuses whenever the Supreme Court takes away another one of our rights. Make sure to subscribe to Strict Scrutiny wherever you get your podcasts. The Crooked Store's latest collection has a clear message for anyone trying to take away abortion rights. Don't. The No Trespassing collection features four different designs, each inspired by a different state where abortion is under attack. There's Stay Out of My Swamp for Florida, Stay Out of My Hole for Arizona, Stay Out of My Prickly Pear for Texas, and Stay Out of My Strip for Nevada. But obviously, I'll be wearing these no matter where I am. A portion of proceeds from the collection will go to Vote Save America's F-Bands, the Fight Back Fund, which currently is supporting abortion rights organizations across Arizona, Nevada, and Florida. Head to cricket.com slash store to shop. 
Joining us now is the new representative from Florida's 10th district in Orlando, the first Gen Z member of Congress, Maxwell Alejandro Frost. Congressman, welcome to Pod Save America. Hey, thanks for having me on. You called your first week in Congress a shit show, which seems like a fair and even charitable description. Uh, What was going through your mind during all those votes for speaker? Well, you know, it changed every day. uh, But like when we were in the chamber at like midnight, doing those votes. Um, it was a little bit more exciting, obviously, and, and also depressing when you think about, you know, th- th- this is the body making decisions for our country and there's a physical altercation going on on the other side of the aisle. Uh, mm. the, I was just thinking about this the other day that I would get a lot of calls from family and friends saying, what's with the chaos? It must be crazy. And it is, right? What was going on? But for me, I would like give my, I'd say Jeffries when they'd say Frost and then I'd be free for while other people said, you know, the you know voted. So there wasn't a lot of like physical chaos per se. Um, but but it was also chaotic. So it was interesting kind of squaring the two, you know. How close were you? What kind of what kind of angle did you get on uh, the part in the moment when uh, somebody uh, Mike Rogers, Mike, Mike Rogers? Well, no, but who when somebody put their face? It's tough when someone uses their hand on your mouth <laughs> to know. pull you away from an altercation. Uh, did you, how did you, could you see it? How close were you? I did see it. I was on the other side of the aisle. I was sitting with a bunch of freshmen. We were all sitting together and I did see it happen. I'm surprised they didn't get in a fight. Cause I mean, if someone puts their finger in my mouth, uh, you know, on the house floor, I don't, I don't know, you know, <laughs> it's not good. No, I, I, I saw what happened. I mean, it was, it was wild. You know, I was getting a lot of texts, people saying I, I had one of my friends second, say, go over there. I was like, I'm not going over there. I'm going to sit right here, <laughs> you know? Uh, but just pretty wild. It's like, I, go over there. Who you, whose side was, are you on? Yeah, I, was gonna say, I think that was the wise move. <laughs> Did you have any fun or weird or terrifying conversations while you were on the floor? I, like I, a lot of people talked about there was AOC talking to Paul Gosar at one point. Did you have anything like that? Not necessarily. You know, I kind of, I kind of, you know, did my vote and I took the opportunity to speak with a lot of other members and make some good relationships. Um, but I did not really go and have some like interesting, wild conversations with, with people on the other side. I thought about going over and saying hi to some of the Republican members from Florida who were kind of part of that group at the beginning and just kind of seeing what's up. Uh, but I decided to kind of let the process play out and, you know, maybe introduce myself at another time. The funny thing is a lot of people in Florida have been asking for a freshman photo, like a bipartisan photo. And I was talking with Jared Moskowitz, um, that night at like midnight, I was like, maybe tonight's the night to pull everybody together um but there was a fight anyways so we didn't do it <laughs> um all right so you've gotten quite a bit of coverage as the first gen z member of congress i've seen a bunch of profiles how are you handling all the attention well you know i um it's been a lot it's been different for me um i'm used to being on the staff side and you know working on campaigns and everything um, but I've really taken this opportunity to talk about like what's going on in Florida, what's going on locally, talk about the anxieties and hopes and dreams of young people and at least young folks who like agree with me on a lot of issues um, and really think about it that way. But I think it's important to like really stay grounded in the district, in home, right? Because those are the folks that sent me here. And so I'm always careful to not, you know, appear at like, you know, the celebrity culture is real and celebrity culture in our politics is also real. And sometimes it's okay to admire people, but it gets to a point where we feel like there's this one politician that's going to save us all. And that's not how our system works, right? It's not meant for one person to be able to do it all. We, we need a movement inside and outside the halls of Congress. 
So um, it's always exciting, but I always like to tell people it's going to take all of us. It's not the Maxwell Frost show. Um, it, it was really going to take a lot more folks who, you know, think alike so we can pass real legislation that's going to have like transformational change for people across the country. Pretty tough shot at uh, Chris Coons. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what, what, what do you think older generations um, misunderstand most when it comes to your generation's view of politics? Yeah, you know, a message I get a lot, and and this is no flight to anyone who has sent this message to me or said it because it's really, it really means a lot and I get where people are coming from. But something we hear a lot of is the young people will save us. And and I get where that comes from. But, you know, I think like young folks, we're not looking to like save everyone. We just want to be a part, of it, right? We want to be a part of it. We want to be heard. Um, and it shouldn't just be up, you know, up to young people to, to save everyone, right? We need a multiracial multi-generational movement all of us working together for a better world seven generations in the future um and so that's something i think that's sometimes misunderstood we want to be a part of the conversation we want to be centered at points but we don't want to be the lone people working to you know fix these problems that have been around for generations so i'd say that that that's something i'd say and again it's not to offend anyone who said that because i understand where people are coming from but i i think it's important that we all see ourselves as a part of the solution and not just like young people. So uh, you are Gen Z, we are millennials. Uh, now, uh, a lot of people had hoped that okay. the turnout that we would that we would learn from the turnout that Gen Z had really helped make the difference. And Gen Z did turn out, but actually not to the same extent that it, that millennials turned out uh, to help prevent there from being a red wave. Uh, what can you do to learn from us as millennials, as your uh, as your elders, as the previous generation, how do we inspire you? How do we help you succeed? How do we inspire you? In such a great. <laughs> how do we inspire you? This is a great question. Thank you. Thank you. you know, Unbelievable. <laughs> a lot of the no, no, but to be like you know, I've been looking at a lot of the numbers, and I think you know, I think a lot of times folks are expecting because of like what we see on the news: first Gen Z member of Congress, March for Lives, etc. Like Gen Z to come out and outvote everybody. And what we know to be true is since the beginning of our country, the youth vote, especially like the younger people, 18 through 25, have always been really the smallest piece of the pot, right? And that's for many different reasons. There's there's a lot of institutional barriers to voting. Voting is seen as an extracurricular for a lot of young people. It's not like built into, you know, schooling the way it should be. It comes at a time when you're 18 years old where you're applying to college, you're falling in love. All this stuff is happening, which is a great argument for lowering the voting age for a lot of municipal elections. So it's part of, it, it's more of a habit. But all that being said, Gen Z can make up a, a portion of the vote that can really tip of these elections, right? It's not always the biggest voting block that is, you know, if the normal, if people turn out normally, right? You're looking for these blocks that you can turn out that might not be the biggest slice, but in these neck and neck races can mean the difference. That's what happened in Georgia with Senator Warnock both times. We've seen this happen in different races across the country. So, and when you look at the numbers, Gen Z at our current age, we're voting at higher numbers than any other generation has ever done at our at this current age right now. And I think it's important yeah. to look at that because it gives me a lot of hope. I'm not trying to pit generations against each other. It, I am. Yeah, he is. Yeah. <laughs> it shows me we're going in the right direction. And hey, half a Gen Z can't even vote yet. The youngest Gen Z is like 12 years old. So I think we have a good opportunity here. I think we're trending in the right direction. There's still a lot of work to be done, but I, people shouldn't say, oh, young people aren't voting. We shouldn't pay attention to them. We're at voting at the highest numbers proportionately than we ever have. And I, I think we got to keep building on that. 
Uh, you made some news in December when you talked about how you hadn't been able to get an apartment in D.C. because uh, you have bad credit after spending a lot of money on your campaign. Why did you want to share that story? Well, two reasons. There's two reasons. Number one, I think it was important to make a point. I want you know, I think vulnerability from our electeds is really important because it goes yeah. to show that like we're people too. But not just that; it's that a lot of these issues will continue with folks even when they get to like a seat of power, position of power. So I think that was really important. And I wanted, and I just wanted to be vulnerable with folks. The other thing is I was just kind of pissed off because I had just gotten the message that I was denied from the apartment. And so I was also a bit frustrated. And so, you know, I, as a, in typical Gen Z fashion, I was taking the Twitter to air out a little bit of my frustration. But I'm glad that it ended up, you know, creating a, you know, they asked in a White House briefing about it. And so I'm glad that like the tweet led to a lot of broader conversations around housing and equity around housing, because it, it's something we don't talk about a lot, especially these barriers to even running for office. Um, it, we've got to talk about yeah. Well, I was going to ask you though about that because I talked to a bunch of voters uh, during the midterms, and the number one issue I heard about was cost of housing, and that was especially true with the group of uh, young voters I spoke to. Like, what do you think Congress and the White House should do about that? There's a lot that needs to be done. We know, like the the biggest levers on housing are pulled at the municipal and countywide level, but what the federal government can do is two things. Number one bring money home, bring money to these municipalities and countywide governments so they have the resources they need to actually act on getting more housing and not just more housing, affordable housing near opportunity. Like Orlando right now, Central Florida has one of the worst affordable housing crises in the country per capita. Um, but the problem isn't just affordable housing. I can go two hours north of Florida and find great housing that's really cheap, but then that's two hours from the city center, right? It's not near opportunity. So we need money to come back to these communities and it needs to bypass the state and go directly to the local governments. Like Florida's preempting everything right now. Um, so it's important that local governments have resources. The second thing is pass laws that are number one, going to protect renters and tenants. And number two, give renters and tenants more power in the marketplace. COVID, you know, showed a lot of things, you know, inequities in healthcare, et cetera. It also lessened the amount of power that tenants and renters have in the marketplace right now, because a lot of these huge conglomerates and these leasing companies, management companies were able to buy up all this inventory. And now they own most of, you know, most of, uh, of the inventory, especially in central Florida. So you have a hard time finding a place that's affordable. And we know that when you move into a place, it's not just, oh, you pay first month's rent. You're paying first, you're paying last, you're paying your deposit. You got to furnish the place. That's a lot of money to have in your bank account to be able to move into a place in the first place. So there's a lot that needs to be, I think the federal federal government can do a lot to protect renters. We've talked about things like rent stabilization. Uh, we've talked about things like, you know, rent control. I've, I think there's great opportunity here, but we, we have to talk about it because people are being evicted left and right and they're having a hard time finding a place to live. You've been an activist and an organizer. You ran partly because you were frustrated with lack of progress on issues like housing and guns and health care. You're now in the minority party. Uh, in a divided government. Um, what are your realistic goals for the next two years? Well, um, the, the three issues we're going to focus on right out the gate are housing, gun violence, and we're also going to focus on music and arts funding, um, which is a huge thing in Orlando and Central Florida. We're a very culture-based city. And I think every one of those we can work on in a bipartisan way. We might not get the North Star, I believe in, in these next two years. We've seen the dysfunction over the past week. So it seems like things even Republicans are for, they're going to have a hard time past 
thing, let alone the things that I believe in. But I think there's ways that we can sneak in and get in good uh, uh, amendments or appropriations that are going to help fund a lot of these programs that are important. When we talk about gun violence, I know I say gun violence and everyone's like, you just pa- they just passed the first piece of legislation in generations last year in the Democrat side of Congress. Well, there's a lot of other things we can talk about in gun violence that's beyond or, or different than gun regulation, which is the most controversial part. We need more gun regulation, but we also need money to go to fund community violence intervention programs, which are evidence-based programs that help end gun violence before it even happens. This is a lot of the work that a lot of people were protesting for during Black Lives Matter. We need money in our communities. We need money in our communities. These, this money goes to these community-based programs that help get kids off the streets and do a ton of different work to help end gun violence before it happens. It's a proactive solution, and I think we can get that type of money passed in a bipartisan way. At least I hope we can. So uh, during the uh, speaker fiasco, uh, C-SPAN cameras were off, the, off their uh, lockdown position. They were catching every moment. Uh, we all loved it. You loved it. Uh, how do we is there any hope given how that we can stop the Republican majority in the speaker's office from forcing C-SPAN to lock down the cameras? Can we keep the angles? We're going to do everything we can to try. Um, there's already some emails going around and people organizing. Around it. Nice. When we talk about bipartisan things, I, I saw Chip Roy talking about this, too, and he's actually for freeing the C-SPAN cameras as well. I probably we probably won't agree on almost anything this next Congress, but we agree on this. So I think there's appetite for it. There's obviously public appetite for it. I've, I've offered my own help on ways we can organize around it. So we'll see. I think we're going to learn what the next okay. you know, couple of days here. But I, I think there's an opportunity to keep the C-SPAN cameras free. I think it's important. Like It makes democracy, number one, more exciting, obviously, but it also uh, gives people an opportunity to have real accountability and accessibility in the House. I think a lot of us will read an article and think, oh, this set of members, they never talk with anyone besides themselves. But when you're on the House floor, you see that kind of everybody talks with everybody. And those kind of conversations, I think it's important for the public to see. So uh, you were arrested in 2020 in a protest. You were sworn into Congress this week. You posted both your mugshot and your official portrait, but you said it wasn't a glow up. Uh, Is that a a substantive representation of the values in those photos or do you just really like your mugshot? (laughs) I don't like my mugshot. That was during Black Lives Matter protests, the height of COVID. I hadn't gotten my hair cut in a long time. (laughs) I think you look good in that picture. (laughs) <laughs> my friends call that mugshot my Lion King haircut because my I just got so much hair. <laughs> so, uh, but either way, you know, I think it was important for me to post that. And the reason I posted the glow up thing is because I knew there'd be a lot of folks who, if I didn't put that, who would quote tweet and say, look at this glow up, look at this glow up. And that's not the point of that, of that, you know. <laughs> it's not that, oh, he was in jail and now he's a member of Congress. No, that's not, we're not trying to demonize people who are incarcerated a lot of times because of bogus laws and because of racism, et cetera. So that's and that's why I posted that. It's not about a glow up. I'm, I'm the same person. I have the same values. I'm just now in a, in a, in a position here where I'm able, hopefully, to be able to uh, uplift a lot of our arguments and what we believe in. And so I'm glad it's got a good reception and, you know, people are able to look at that kind of honesty and vulnerability, you know. And some of my opponents, like, used my mugshot during the campaign. And so Another, I want to post it too because I'm proud of the work that we did. I'm proud of the fact that you know we took to the streets in nonviolent form to advocate for Black lives and for our communities. And so I'll, I'll gladly post it. Uh, last question. We'll let you go. 
a lot of people your age are ready to give up on politics for a lot of understandable reasons. You're in the fight now. You're a new member of Congress. You are, of course, going to have two years where, like you said, hopefully you can get some bipartisan accomplishments here and there. But it's going to be tough. A lot of people likely at the end of the next two years are going to say, ugh, Washington still seems broken. And then why should I be involved? What do you want them to know about why you still feel politics is worthwhile? Yeah, I, I was just talking about this this morning. I think there's a few few things real quick. The first one is we've been lied to for generations about how things work up here in order for people to get elected to office. So we have politicians who will say, vote for me, vote for me, and this will happen tomorrow. This will happen next year. We all know that that's not how this process works. And what that does is sow in a lot of doubt into our voters who will vote for someone, not see the change in that two years, and then think, wow, my vote doesn't mean anything. And I don't blame people for feeling that way if that is if the two years, right, is the span of thinking it. Um, and so I've been honest with people both in my district and in interviews. You know, I'm honest. I say, here's what I believe in. I cannot promise it will pass this year or next year because I'm one of 435 people. This is how the system works. But what I can promise you is what I believe in, how hard I'm going to fight for it, and what I'm going to do back at home. And we're all part of this together, right? Not propping myself as some savior because that's not how this works but all of us together. It's not just me working for my community. It's me working with my community. And I think when people see themselves as a part of that struggle with you, they're more likely to kind of understand the realistic approach, right? And they're less likely after two years to say, wow, we don't have Medicare, you know, for all, not everyone has healthcare. This is worthless. It's a, it's a broader struggle. The second thing is we have to be honest about a timetable here. And again, it has to do with these like two years, right? It's goes beyond two years, right? That this struggle is a generational thing for health care, for climate justice and gun violence, et cetera. And I think it's important to be honest with people about that, not to discourage them, right? But to make sure they're really bought into the current landscape. So that way everyone has the same expectations. It's not, we're not going to be able to get everyone on board with this. But every time I talk with people, anybody, I'm very honest about the fact that we're not going to see bold transformational change in the next two years out of the United States Congress. And I'll tell them why. It's, we have a majority that doesn't believe in it. And it seems like even the things they do believe in, they're not even going to be able to get passed. But guess what? There's light at the end of the tunnel. In two years, we're going to be able to get back a Democratic majority and we're going to be able to fight for what we believe in in a better way and be set up to actually pass things. And so I think when you're honest with people, I, I think we should give people the benefit of the doubt, especially in our communities, and not be lying to them all the time about the powers of this office, because a lot of the power of this office comes from the people themselves, and they need to see themselves integrated in the process. An organizer at heart. I love it. It's refreshing. Uh, Congressman Frost, thank you so much for joining Pod Save America, and, uh, and good luck to you. Thanks for having me on. Have a good day. All right. Thanks to Congressman Frost for joining us today. And uh, we'll talk to you on Thursday. Bye, everyone. Pod Save America is a Crooked Media production. The executive producer is Michael Martinez. Our senior producer is Andy Gardner-Bernstein. Our producers are Haley Muse and Olivia Martinez. It's mixed and edited by Andrew Chadwick. Kyle Seglin and Charlotte Landis sound engineered the show. Thanks to Hallie Kiefer, Ari Schwartz, Sandy Gerard, Andy Taft, and Justine Howe for production support. And to our digital team, Elijah Cohn, Phoebe Bradford, Milo Kim, and Amelia Montu. Our episodes are uploaded as videos at youtube.com slash podsaveamerica. America.